Hi, and welcome to the Hormonal Mama podcast. I am your host, Kara Drescher. Today on the show, we are talking about postpartum hormones and how these hormones affect the skin. Before I jump in and talk all about hormonal changes and skin, let's talk for a minute about postpartum and what exactly that means. Most of the time when you hear the phrase postpartum or if you even just type into Google postpartum and you don't put anything else, the vast majority of the time you're going to see postpartum depression, which is something I'll talk about in another episode. I'm not talking about that today, but... I want to really break down for you and really specify what I mean when I talk about postpartum because it, it does vary depending on your source. When I talk about postpartum, me being Kara Drescher or the hormonal mama, <laughs> if you hear me talking postpartum, I consider that to be the entire first year after giving Birth. However, if you do a little more research aside from, you know, like I said, if you just type in postpartum, you're going to mostly see postpartum depression. But if you type in postpartum period or postpartum hormones or anything like that, you're going to get a few different um, results about what the time frame is. So let me break down for you a couple of different definitions so you kind of get a better idea of what I mean. So according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they have two definitions of the term postpartum. The first definition is occurring in or being the period following childbirth. The second definition is being in or used in the postpartum period. So you can see this isn't very specific. It's kind of general saying after childbirth. Now, if you look at other sources, for example, the ones that I'm quoting that I found to be very helpful were about kids' health. That's a website. Their definition is the postpartum period is commonly defined as the six weeks after childbirth. But in an article I read in the Journal of Prenatal Medicine, they talk about the postpartum period going up to six months. They break it down into three phases, three distinct phases. Number one, the initial or acute period involves the first 6 to 12 hours postpartum. The second phase is the subacute postpartum period, which lasts two to six weeks. And the third phase is the delayed postpartum period, which can last up to six months. So as you can see, it really depends on your source. And that's really confusing. So I, again, for all of my purposes today and anytime that you listen to my podcast, read my blog or my social media or anything like that, when I'm talking postpartum, I'm talking about the minute that your baby is born in whatever way the baby came into the world to that one year mark a year later. The reason I do this is because so much happens in that first year. Granted, a lot happens in those first few weeks. It's kind of insane. Roller coaster is like a complete understatement in my opinion. Now, granted, I had twins, so it's a little bit different. But ultimately, new moms are all experiencing the same thing. Up and down, roller coaster. You go up, you go down, you go up, you go down. And it's it's a madhouse, really. So 
I feel really strongly that even though the insane hormonal changes take place in those first few weeks and months, all the other changes that are happening continue well past those first few weeks and months. So I like to consider the postpartum period being an entire year after you give birth. I think that that really helps to explain things and understand things better. At this point, I'm 19 months postpartum, so I don't technically fit into the postpartum period anymore. I still think of myself as a new mom, even though, you know, my kids are a year and a half old. I still think that I'm new to this because truthfully, I am. Every day is something new that I haven't done before. I don't have, I don't have, I have never had 19 month old kids before. So that's a side note, but that's just me kind of making my point that the postpartum period, I feel strongly is longer than people say. It's longer than the technical or medical terminology um, suggests. So in this episode, when we're talking about hormonal changes, I'm going to be focusing mostly on the drastic changes that happen in the very beginning. But that's just because the changes, the hormonal ups and downs are primarily happening in the beginning beginning meaning right after childbirth and in those first few weeks. So now that you understand that, let's break it down and let's actually talk about some hormones. So after giving birth, a significant amount of hormonal changes take place, primarily the dramatic drop in estrogen and progesterone, which are both present during pregnancy and in very large amounts. But also concurrent with that is the rapid increase in hormones like prolactin, cortisol, and oxytocin. Now, I have these amazing graphs that I found um, that I have on my blog post that coincides with this podcast episode. So if you go to my website and you check out um, the same title here, I have Beauty After Baby, A Guide for New Mom Skin Troubles. You'll see these really great graphs that I think are really helpful and break down um, the changes in the hormones. If you're a visual person like me, it's really helpful to see exactly what I mean when I talk about the roller coaster. You look at these charts or graphs and it's literally like looking at a roller coaster. It's bonkers in my opinion. Anyway, so let's talk about each of these hormones, these five hormones that I just mentioned. Let's talk about progesterone first. And the reason I want to talk about this is because it is in such high amounts during pregnancy. But once childbirth occurs, all of a sudden progesterone drops dramatically. You have this, you know, high amount during pregnancy and then boom, it plummets. So progesterone's job is to maintain the uterine lining to keep it thick enough for embryo implantation. So this is progesterone's purpose during pregnancy. It continues to be produced to maintain the thickness of the uterus and support the growth of the embryo while the placenta is growing and being established. Okay, so it's really plain and simple what progesterone's purpose is. Its job is to make maintain the pregnancy, to make sure that the environment is appropriate and safe for a growing fetus or embryo, okay? So prior to pregnancy, um, progesterone is produced by the ovaries, and then 
here's what I, I don't know, personally, I find this very interesting. That's prior to pregnancy. But during pregnancy, production of progesterone is by the placenta, no longer the ovaries. I just think that's really interesting that these two very different organs, one that didn't used to exist, is now producing this hormone that was created by a different organ that does exist. I don't know how else to explain that. It's just really interesting to me. But, you know, that's why I talk about this stuff, because I find it interesting. So let's move on to estrogen. So like progesterone, estrogen contributes to the uterine lining thickness, but it has other purposes. It also helps with uterine growth, and it helps with triggering the development of the fetus's organs. Similar to progesterone, it is initially produced by the ovaries, but when the pregnancy occurs, it begins production within the placenta. Again, I don't know about you. I find that very interesting. I think it's also very interesting that these two hormones are produced in the same places. And then if you look at these graphs that I was talking about, they're very similar in their levels, not necessarily the amount, but they follow the same path. They're, they're parallel to each other. And again, you have to really look at the, uh, the graphs to understand what I mean by that. But the point is that during pregnancy, these hormones start off low and gradually get higher and higher levels in the blood because so much more is being produced to maintain the pregnancy. And then childbirth happens and they plummet, both of them, just boom, plummet as far down as you can go. Now, if I say that, it's not like they disappear completely, but they're no longer being produced at these extremely high levels. Now, on the flip side, let's talk about prolactin, cortisol, and oxytocin. I'm going to start with prolactin. So unlike progesterone and estrogen, prolactin is produced in the pituitary gland. The main purpose of prolactin is to promote breast tissue growth and milk production in the breasts, both during pregnancy and after birth. So prolactin is being produced during pregnancy, but at much lower levels than it will be after childbirth. The reason for that is because its purpose is to promote the growth of breast tissue and to promote milk production. So while it's doing a little bit of work during pregnancy to start the milk production process, it suddenly becomes so much more increased after childbirth because it's not starting the process anymore. It's a regular process if you're breastfeeding. If you're not breastfeeding, this is a little bit different, but during pregnancy, it's doing the same thing. Your body doesn't know yet that you're not going to be breastfeeding until the baby is born and you either do or don't breastfeed. So that's a very interesting thing, again, to me, that our body intuitively knows, oh, I'm not breastfeeding, then I don't need to produce this hormone. Oh, I am breastfeeding, then I do need to produce this hormone. And you don't have to do anything. Your body does it for you. It's very interesting. Um, so prolactin levels are relatively low during pregnancy and then spike after birth. So similar, but on the, you know, like I said, the flip side, estrogen and progesterone start high and then plummet right? Now prolactin starts low and then spikes. So that's interesting to keep in mind. What I think is really interesting as well is what happens during breastfeeding. 
So if you're breastfeeding, this is where prolactin levels change all the time. And it's, again, up and down and up and down. So each time the baby nurses, the level of prolactin spikes immediately following and then dips. So what's happening is the body is producing breast milk between nursing sessions so that it's ready to release into the milk ducts the next time the baby latches. So again, this is your body's way of preparing for what's to come. Moving on, let's talk about cortisol. Cortisol, everyone's favorite. This is better known as the stress hormone. Cortisol is produced in the adrenal glands, but production is triggered by the pituitary gland. I'm not going to get into a whole endocrine lesson because the endocrine system is very complex. It's very difficult for me (laughs) to teach because it is complicated, it is fascinating, and it's just a little too difficult to break all that down for me. For a lot of you, you might be listening and be like, lady, this is really easy to understand, but this is me. (laughs) So that is just something really complex is that the pituitary gland is kind of this master gland and it does all these things for other glands throughout the body. And this is one of those things. The pituitary gland triggers production of cortisol within the adrenal glands. There we go. There's our simple way of wording it. Cortisol slowly increases throughout pregnancy and then surges just before and during labor and birth. So that is kind of an interesting thing to look at because, again, all of these hormones are doing all these different things. It's sort of like, la-da-da-da-da, I'm just going to increase a little bit, and then bam, I'm going to just surge up and be there, okay? So that is what is interesting. So another thing that I you know, learned is that The rise in cortisol may help fetal organs mature just before labor begins and influence the timing of birth. So this is information that I found on yourhormones.info, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to understand. Cortisol, like I said, known as the stress hormone, is usually highest in situations like flight or fight or other things. It kind of is similar to adrenaline. It's a complete completely different hormone. But it's really interesting that even though this stress hormone, now I put that in quotes, you can't see me, but I just put it in quotes when I said it, even though it is a stress hormone, having the surge right before uh, labor and birth can actually potentially help fetal organs mature just before labor begins. How cool is that? I just think that's fascinating. And then last on my list of hormones that we're going to talk about is oxytocin. Oxytocin is produced by the hypothalamus and is secreted by the pituitary gland. It is the primary hormone involved in childbirth. It stimulates uterine contractions, which triggers labor, plain and simply. But here's what's interesting. This is similar to prolactin, even though the... um, The hormone itself is completely different. It does something very similar when it comes to breastfeeding. So after birth, oxytocin oxytocin plays an additional role in by moving milk in breast. So during breastfeeding, oxytocin is released, causing the milk to eject out of the breast. But when the baby stops that particular feeding, oxytocin, oxytocin production stops 
until the next feeding. So it kind of goes up and down and up and down and up and down in these very short uh, intervals, these little bursts of time when a baby is breastfeeding. And that is when you get these spikes in oxytocin. Now, in those first few weeks, the spikes in oxytocin during breastfeeding, the job is to trigger the uterine contractions because the uterus is still enlarged because you just carried a baby or more. And it still needs to contract and get down to its uh, pre-pregnancy size, which doesn't happen overnight. This takes about six weeks or so. So every time that oxytocin is released, the uterus contracts. So this is another interesting fact that happens that I think is just you know, the most amazing thing because our bodies are crazy and do amazing and and bonkers things. So now that you kind of have an idea of these five hormones, what their purpose is, where they come from, let's talk a little bit about how each of these hormones can actually affect the skin. What can they do to the skin? So now it's time to talk about skin troubles and how these skin troubles can be triggered by the hormonal changes. I want to talk about each hormone specifically and the skin changes that each particular hormone um, causes. So let's start with oxytocin. There is not a ton of information out there about how oxytocin may affect skin. And the reason for that is because there's not really enough research yet. There's always research that is ongoing. So I'm sure in time there will be more information about how oxytocin affects the skin. But some studies, some, not all, and keep keep in mind when I say some studies, I'm not talking oh, hundreds of studies, and I'm not necessarily talking about one. I'm just talking about a handful. So some studies conclude that the presence of oxytocin may reduce inflammation and free radicals in the skin. And another interesting study that I came across shows that oxytocin may be effective in the prevention of aging, of skin aging. That is so interesting to me. I would love to see more research on this and learn, you know, how does oxytocin really affect the skin? Because if oxytocin is effective in preventing aging, I mean, how amazing would that be? And also, I mean, the, the other part that I mentioned is reducing inflammation and free radicals. I mean, how great would that be? These are two well, really three amazing um, things that oxytocin may do for the skin. So there's not much information that I could find about, you know, bad things that oxytocin does for the skin. So, hey, that's a bonus, right? That's something great to think about. There are potential good effects. Let's talk about prolactin. So similar to oxytocin, there isn't much research out there to show how prolactin affects the skin. However, this is interesting. There are some studies that prove that there is a connection between prolactin and epithelial cell proliferation. Well, what does that mean? So proliferation is basically the multiplying of cells. Okay, so proliferation is we're creating more and more cells. Epithelial cells are a specific type of cell within the body, 
inside and outside. When I say outside, I'm talking about the skin. So epithelial cells are cells that cover an area or line an area. So for example, epithelial cells occur in the skin, epithelial, I can't speak, epithelial cells. I was saying that too fast. Epithelial cells, I keep saying it, um, also occur on organ linings. So if you think of like the lining of the stomach or the lining of the intestines, places like that have epithelial cells. So if it's true that prolactin, that there is a connection between prolactin and epithelial cell proliferation, that would be pretty amazing if they can show this because being able to multiply could be good and bad, right? If your skin, or it will say if cells multiply too much, we know that that becomes a tumor, right? Any cell that over multiplies, that is when you are dealing with a cancer, okay? But if a cell, let's just say a cell needs to multiply, but isn't multiplying enough, this could potentially be something helpful for that. So I think it's really interesting that some studies are showing this and hopefully there will be more studies and we'll find out more information because how cool would that be? Moving on, cortisol, our evil stress hormone. So cortisol levels increase dramatically after giving birth, like I talked about before. The extreme rise in cortisol can wreak havoc on your skin and cause things like acne, redness, premature aging, and dryness. Now, this is interesting because acne and dryness, these are two things that sometimes go hand in hand, but most of the time when you think of acne, you're probably going to think oily skin. But that's not always the case. Sometimes acne can occur when skin is too dry. So, that's just something I wanted to mention. I think that's really interesting. The other thing that an increase in cortisol can do is worsen pre-existing skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, or even rosacea. So cortisol can be a jerk. Let's just put it out there. Cortisol is an important hormone. If we didn't have cortisol, we wouldn't be able to use our fight or flight instinct. So keep that in mind. Even though it is a stress hormone and nobody wants to deal with stress, it's an important hormone because it helps our bodies know how to react to danger. If we didn't have this hormone releasing in a dangerous situation, our body would not know what to do and the dangerous situation could be worse. So it is an important hormone. But like I said, it can also be a jerk and wreak havoc on your skin. So think about that when you're thinking about these increased or extremely increased levels after giving birth. This, you know, does a number on your skin is what I'm getting at here. Estrogen. As estrogen levels rapidly decrease post-birth, because remember, estrogen is not going to increase. It decreases. It increases during pregnancy, and then it drops. So as the levels rapidly decrease, skin reacts accordingly. 
So I talked about this in my last episode, and I talked about estrogen levels during pregnancy and how it can cause like super high levels can cause red, itchy skin due to these super high levels in the body. But after childbirth, when estrogen levels drop so dramatically, this extreme drop can cause dry skin, thinning skin, wrinkles, and a decrease in elasticity in the skin. Elasticity in the skin is really important. But when you lose that elasticity and skin starts to sag and it doesn't bounce back and you've got the dryness and you got the wrinkles and all the thinning and all this terrible stuff, obviously your skin is reacting to this extreme change in hormones. Last, we've got progesterone. So similar to the drop in estrogen, progesterone also drops dramatically, which I talked about before. And in the graphs I was talking about, you can see how they are parallel and they go, 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 and then they drop at the same rate, even though the levels are different numbers. So the drop in progesterone can lead to undesirable skin changes such as acne, dry and or cracked skin, and even peeling of the skin on the heels or the hands. So this is not something anyone wants to deal with. Who wants to deal with this? these extreme issues? But again, this is what happens when you have these extreme changes in hormones during and after childbirth. So what can you do about all of these changes that could potentially happen to the skin? Well, this is kind of a two-part answer. Part one, there's not much you can do to prevent these changes from happening. Hormonal changes are just part of the reproduction process. So there isn't anything you can do to stop them from surging and dropping. That is the bad news. (laughs) That's the unfortunate part is that they're going to do what they're going to do and your skin's going to react however it's going to react. You can't prevent it. But what you can do, and this is part two or the good news, is you can make sure that you are doing your part to take care of your skin properly. What do I mean? Okay. So at the absolute minimum, you should be cleansing and moisturizing your skin twice a day. But let's take it a little bit further. To take even better care of your skin, you should be exfoliating two to three times a week, using a mask two to three times a week. You should be using a serum once a day, and you should be using a toner throughout the day whenever your skin feels dehydrated, a misting toner or a spritzer. This is so beneficial. You can use toner during your skincare regimen, right? You cleanse your skin, you tone your skin, blah, blah, blah. But if you carry your um, toner spritzer bottle with you, you can spritz that toner on your skin at any time during the day. Just get a boost of hydration because here's the important fact. Regardless of your skin type, dry, oily, mature, whatever, hydration is always important. Any of these skin types can have an underlying dehydration issue. Now, dehydration in the skin comes from within. Now, I know that rhymes, and I'm a big fan of rhyming, but that was unintentional. So hopefully, if you like rhymes, you think that's great. And if not, you can roll your eyes at me and be like, oh, she's ridiculous. But the point is that dehydration comes from within. If you are not staying properly hydrated and drinking enough water, 
your skin's going to show it and your skin's going to be dry and flaky. Now, this is going to complicate whether you have oily skin, dry skin, rosacea, sensitive skin. Any skin type can be affected by dehydration in ways you don't expect. I will talk about all of that another time. But my point is toner is one of the best things you can do for your skin, especially a hydrating toner. It's just a wonderful thing that you can use. Um, so those are the things to really, really take care of your skin so that you can tackle these problems as they arise. You can't prevent them, but you can help treat them. On top of that, it is important to understand that as your skin changes, so should your products and routine. If you notice that these hormonal changes are causing your, let's say, usually oily skin to suddenly become dry, then you're going to want to use products that are intended for dry skin and then vice versa. If your skin is usually dry and suddenly it becomes oily due to these hormonal changes, then you're going to want to use products that are intended for oily skin. Things like that. That's what you need to be aware of is that all of these changes that can happen to your skin can't change them, but you can treat them. But you might not be able to treat them the way you normally treat your skin. Most women deal with different skin issues throughout their cycle. Or if you're like me, you have seasonal skin. What's seasonal skin? I refer to that as skin that changes with the seasons. So for example, in the winter months, my skin is extremely dry. In the summer months, my skin is extremely oily and it is gross. I change what I use on my skin depending on the season because I know in the winter if I use something that's really light, it's not going to moisturize and keep my skin staying hydrated. It's going to, I'm still going to be dry and it's going to suck. And in the summer, if I use a product that's too heavy for my extremely oily skin, oh, I'm going to have all kinds of problems and it's going to be horrible. This is the same concept. You really need to pay attention. What is your skin doing? How is your skin reacting to these hormones? And that is how you decide which products to use because it's going to depend a hundred percent on what your skin is doing, which not, might not be what it usually does. I hope that makes at least some sort of sense. <laughs> so to sum it all up, hormonal changes are part of the reproduction process before, during, and after pregnancy. There's no way to prevent postpartum hormonal skin changes from occurring, but there's a lot that you can do to stay on top of your skincare routine to prevent these issues from worsening. That's the whole point, is just taking care of what's happening and preventing it from getting worse. I hope this episode was super helpful for you. I hope you learned a lot. Stick with me in my next episode. I'm going to be finishing out my nine-part series with four more episodes. Next episode, we're going to be talking about wellness and how wellness affects the infertility, pregnancy, and postpartum journeys. I hope you'll stick with me. I can't wait. Take care, and I will talk to you in our next episode. Mm -hmm.